Okay, well, good morning. Today, we are not going to turn our notebooks over. I know. Don't tell me I'm stuck in a rut. Um, but we are going to be talking about Discipline 2 in great detail today, which means we can't avoid talking about Discipline 1. You know, they go hand in hand. And everything that we learn about Discipline 2 really just overflows into relationships beyond our home. But since we're going to be studying Deuteronomy, I thought it would be more helpful, rather than reviewing the disciplines um, at the beginning, um, but since Deuteronomy is part of the Old Testament law, it's part of the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic just means Moses. Um, What would be more helpful today in preparation for our lesson is to take a few minutes to talk about salvation in the Old Testament. And the first thing that we need to understand um, when we read Deuteronomy 6 in a minute is that that is a covenant God made with Israel. And that's with a particular nation. It's not a covenant that he made with the church. Now, there are aspects of the covenant he made with Israel that he brought forward for the church that continue into the New Testament, and we will identify some of those as we go along. But there are other aspects that have not been brought forward, and we'll talk about those as well. But what we're, when we read Deuteronomy, we need to remember this is a covenant God made with Israel. And then the second thing that we need to understand about the Mosaic Covenant is that it was not a means of salvation. It was never a means for obtaining righteous standing with God through obedience. Now, how do we know that? Um, Well, Galatians 2.16, you have these references in your notes, but Galatians 2.16 tells us that a man is that we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he finishes the verse by saying, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Romans 3 says almost exactly the same thing. Romans 3 verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. So the message of the Bible is that the righteous will live by faith. Faith gains God's approval, not our works. That was true in the Old Testament, just as it is true now. In Genesis 15, 6, we're told that Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous on the basis of faith. Now, Hebrews 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. You might be familiar with that chapter. And it describes the faith of many Old Testament saints. Verse 2 tells us that by faith, the men of old gained approval. Just like Genesis 15 said about Abraham. They were declared righteous on the basis of faith. Okay, have I said that enough times? <laughs> Righteous on the basis of faith. Um, Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So obedience to the law was not the basis of acceptance with God because it's impossible to please God without faith. Obedience was designed to be an evidence of faith. Hebrews 11.7 tells us that Noah became an heir of righteousness according to faith. And then Hebrews 11.39, summing up the whole chapter, says that all those Old Testament saints gained approval through their faith. Through their faith. So righteousness before God for Israel was by faith. Not all had faith. In fact, you saw a verse in your homework that tells us that that with most of them, God was not well pleased. But faith was the only means of salvation for them just as it is for us. The difference is timing. They lived before Messiah came. We live after his saving work on the cross. So Mosaic law and what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 6 in particular was not a means of salvation. Rather, it was a covenant God made with the nation of Israel that taught them how to live, how to live with him, how to live with each other, how to live in such a way that God would be put on display to the nations around them. And that is not inconsistent with God's grace extending a righteousness by faith alone. He does the same thing with us in the church. By grace, we've been saved through faith. And he tells us how to live as recipients of that grace. 
He has rules and instructions that are for our good and for his glory. So are there any questions about that? And that might be something that's really familiar, but I think it can be, if we don't keep that straight, we can get confused about what the purpose of these instructions are. Okay. Um, Feel free to speak up with questions today. I intentionally tried to keep this lesson a little shorter so that if, um, if questions do come up, I think particularly because it's a lesson that the application for it is going to look different from person to person and season of life and um, what our household, what our family situation looks like. And so if there are questions that come up, just speak up or I'll try to pause between um, points so that you can ask those questions. Okay, well our lesson today is Discipline 2, the home, and we're going to talk about building up our homes with the Word of God. And the idea of building up comes from Proverbs 14.1, which says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Now think about what that would look like literally for a minute. We have a wise woman building her house. Now how would she do that? How do you build a house? It takes planning. It takes preparation. It takes hard work. It takes diligence. It takes perseverance, it takes time. But why would she build a house? Why would anybody build a house? What are the benefits of having a house? Well, houses are places of protection. They're places of rest, fellowship, instruction. It's a place where we share our joys, we share our burdens, It's a place where people are nurtured and provided for. But this verse talks about two women. One woman is building her house, the wise woman. But the foolish woman is also in her house, but she is not building. She is tearing down her house with her own hands. It doesn't say she had a sledgehammer. She's doing it with her own hands. How would you do that? Are you picking out the mortar from between the bricks, bloodying your fingers? Are you bashing out windows with a fist? This This would be a very painful process. It would be slow. Think how consistent she would have to be at ripping her house apart if she's going to tear it down with her own hands. You know, there's also Proverb 18.9, and it says, The one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. So this destruction might come about through slackness, through carelessness. Either way, her house is torn down. All the things that a house is supposed to provide are gone. Gone is the place of protection and nurture and rest. There's no place for instruction or hospitality. They're vivid word pictures, aren't they? And they leave us realizing that being wise women who build our homes is not something that will happen by accident. So today we're going to focus on what it looks like to be wise women who build our homes with the word of God. Now, this is certainly not the only thing that Proverbs 14.1 would have us be concerned with. We don't have to look very far in the book of Proverbs um, to see that it has a lot to say about the kind of women we need to be to be home builders. And we have talked about a lot of those things this year, the qualities we saw in Titus 2 and the qualities that we heard in the biblical womanhood lesson, even the lesson we had last week on pride. We learned a lot about um, how to be women who are building our homes. But today we're going to focus on something we really haven't talked specifically about, and that is building our homes with God's Word. Now, we have talked a lot in Wellspring about how badly our own hearts need God's Word. But today's lesson is aimed at helping us see afresh what God has provided for our households and for our families in His Word. So to do that, we're looking at Deuteronomy 6. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Deuteronomy 6. Now, again, Deuteronomy 6 has instructions for Israel, but there are principles here that will help us to see 
um, principles that will help us be wise for building our homes. And as we go through Deuteronomy 6, we will look at a number of New Testament passages as well that um, show us where those principles are brought forward into the New Testament. So let's go ahead and read from Deuteronomy 6. We'll begin in verse 1, and it says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, You should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And then we have some more warnings and instructions, but I want to drop down and look at verse 20. It says, when your son asks you in time to come, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. So, beautiful, rich picture of home life, God's word, loving God, and bringing that into the homes for Israel. But let's go back and focus on some details. We're going to start at verse 1. Again, it says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. And when you read the word, think about how phrases connect to each other. The next phrase begins with that, and so it's answering the question, why? Why is Moses teaching them? It's that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. It's so that they will obey. Now listen to why their obedience matters. Verse 2, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. See, their obedience was for the purpose of cultivating a reverent fear of God in both their own hearts, he says, so that you might fear the Lord, and in the hearts of their children and in their grandchildren. This is a powerful obedience. And that fear of God would be marked by more obedience. Do you see that chain in those verses? I'll teach you so that you will obey, so that you and your kids will fear God and obey some more. So there's a principle here that we're going to see paralleled in the New Testament, and you have all the principles in your notes, and that is that our obedience to God's word influences others toward God and his word. Think about that. Your obedience to God's word influences others towards God and his word. In the New Testament, we see this principle expressed more broadly than just within the household. We saw it in our study of Titus, way back in the fall, where we saw that gospel-transformed older women needed to live in such a way so that they could train gospel-transformed younger women so that God's word is not dishonored. Our obedience has an influence. 
It influences others toward God and his word. Our obedience has an influence on other women, starting with the women in our own household. Now open up your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to see that this principle was also illustrated in the life of Timothy. Now 2 Timothy is a letter written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor, and he was Paul's son in the faith. And verse 5 of chapter 1 says... For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. So Timothy had the blessing of a believing mother and grandmother. They had a sincere faith. It was a faith that was evident by how they lived. In addition, the apostle Paul was a father to him in the faith, and Paul instructed him as well. We see that in chapter 3. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, and so on. So do you see that Paul had an influence on his spiritual son? Paul became Timothy's example. And then later in the chapter, verse 14, Paul writes this, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. There's a pronoun whom there, and that's plural. We know that Paul taught him, but we look at what comes next to see who else Paul is thinking of who taught Timothy. Verse 15 says, and that from childhood, literally from infancy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that lead to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He's saying, Timothy, You know who taught you. Certainly Paul did, but Paul is also referring to Timothy's faithful mother and grandmother. From the time Timothy was born, they must have been living out their faith and teaching the word of God to Timothy. It's a beautiful example of our principle that our obedience to God's word influences others towards God and his word. And that begins in our households. Now, by the way, there is a huge encouragement in these verses, isn't there? Why do we teach children God's word? It is able to give them the wisdom that leads to salvation. No child is too young to be taught the word of God. Be faithful with God's word in your home. From what we know in scripture, Timothy didn't have a believing father, but that didn't keep his mother and his grandmother from teaching him the word. Now, at this point in the year, you have heard us tell you countless times that these disciplines, and Discipline 2 in particular, is for every season of a woman's life. The role we have with children is different than the role that we might have with roommates or with our parents or our siblings. It's not going to look just the same. It looks different at different seasons of life. But the principle is true, regardless of season of life. We see this in the New Testament in the, in, the, the influence is designed to happen both in our homes and beyond our homes, like we saw with the women in Titus and like we saw with Paul's influence to Timothy. So if we're going to be wise women who build our homes, we must ourselves be women who obey God's word and have a growing reverence for God and who influence others in our households and families toward reverent fear and, and obedience toward God as well. So who can you influence by your obedience and your reverent fear of God? Maybe you want to jot down a name, someone in your family, someone in your household. Who can you influence? Maybe it's your parents. You know, kids, you have an influence on your parents. You can influence your brothers, your sisters, your kids, your husband, your roommates. Our obedience to God's word does influence others toward God and his word. And the wise woman is the one who knows this. And builds up her home by pursuing obedience diligently. She's diligent to repent of her disobedience. To live in the shadow of the cross. Where she is reminded that Christ died to set her free from sin. To forgive her of sin. And to make her a slave of righteousness. She is earnest to influence others in her household and family. Toward a reverent fear and obedience toward God. The foolish woman 
That woman is slack about her obedience. She's careless. She's unconcerned with the influence that she's having on others in her household and family. And she's tearing down her home with her own hands. All right, well, let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. As we continue reading, we see Moses describing some additional benefits of obedience, beginning at the end of verse 2, where he said that your days may be prolonged. And then verse 3, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. So he's telling them how seriously they need to take obedience, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, again, we're not Israel, and we have not been promised a physical land flowing with milk and honey. God has not promised us that we would multiply greatly. But there are some aspects of God's covenant with Israel that Christ did carry over for the church. They are unique. Uh, see, they are, um, I'm sorry. So those are some aspects that of the covenant that Christ did not carry over that are unique to Israel. But there is a principle here that does have continuity in the New Testament, and that is that obedience to God's word is beneficial to those who obey. You know, if you're a parent or if you grew up in a Christian home, you may be familiar with Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of the promise, so that... It may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. There are blessings promised for obedience. We are to teach children to obey so that it may be well with them. And it isn't just in regard to children. You may remember Titus 3.8 from the lesson we did in Titus last fall, where Paul said, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So obedience to God's word is beneficial to those who obey. You know, it's just good to remind ourselves of this. We don't need to be apologetic for lovingly and graciously urging those in our home to obey, to obey God's word. If it's our children, we must train them to obey. And we must remember that obedience will save no one. That is not what Deuteronomy 6 is saying. It's certainly not what the New Testament teaches. Remember, salvation is by faith alone. Romans 1, 17, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness which is by faith from first to last. And Paul was actually quoting... Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet, when he said that. However, salvation is by faith. However, there are many benefits to obeying, both for the believer and the unbeliever. We'll see some of those as we um, get to the end of the chapter. Now, that does not mean that our circumstances will always go well, that they'll always be what we would like them to be. We've got that one figured out, I think. But believers benefit from obedience because God uses it for our good, and for his glory, to conform us to the image of Christ, to purify us, to refine us and sanctify us, to grow our trust in him, to grow our maturity, to equip us to comfort others. Obedience benefits the unbeliever as well. I've got a quote there from John Piper. You can follow along in your notes. Um, And he's talking about the obedience of children who are not saved. And he writes, Gracious parenting leads children from external compliance to joyful willingness. Children need to obey before they can process obedience through faith. When faith comes, the obedience which they have learned from fear and reward and respect will become the natural expression of faith. Not to require obedience before faith is folly. It is not loving in the long run. It cuts deep furrows of disobedient habits that faith must then not infuse, but overcome. So do you have any questions about the benefits of obedience? How obedience is beneficial, even to an unbeliever? I don't know. Sometimes as a parent, you can think, why am I making them obey? They're not even saved. How can they? They don't have the Holy Spirit. But but it's beneficial. We're going to see more of the benefits as we go through the passage. Okay. That's the hardest thing when you're disciplining children when you have a child that has to discipline a lot because 
you know, we're disciplining external behavior, mm -hmm. and there are days when you just feel like, what's this doing? Am I doing any good? You mm -hmm. know, and it has to be, every time we discipline, it has to be connected with the gospel. Mm -hmm. It has to be connected with we're all sinners, we all fall short. Mm -hmm. and I have not succeeded in doing that every time, but mm -hmm. <clears throat> I mean, this this just kind of emphasizes how important that is when we discipline our children mm -hmm. and bring the gospel every time. Yeah. For them, that they know they have a savior. Mm -hmm. And and if you fail to train that obedience, you're actually losing opportunities to communicate exactly what you're saying. You're losing opportunities to communicate the only hope that they really have. Yeah. And I think that's so important, you know, and praise God that Christian parents can do that. And that number one, that principle number one, you know, is now tied to principle number two, so we can be influencing our home with the gospel, whether we're disciplined or not. Mm -hmm. But uh, I have a question about number one. Okay. Yeah, go right ahead. Um, just that our obedience to God's word influences others through God and His word. And, you know, you're comparing the foolish mom or the foolish woman to the wise woman. And since we are such deceivers, our heart deceives. Mm. And we can see everybody else's sin, but not our own. I mean, we're all sitting here thinking, well, I'm not the foolish woman. I certainly don't want to be that foolish woman. I don't want to tear down my house. But can that be happening to a Christian without them knowing it? Do you think? Or will the Holy Spirit help enough so that we won't be that foolish one? I think that's a great question. I think that um, the okay, so the unbeliever. Um, well, first of all, we got we have to remember that proverbs are principles; they're not promises. They're not rules. It's a general principle. So is it possible to see an unbelieving home that outwardly looks like it's actually doing pretty well? Yeah, yeah there are those homes. And um, I mean, ultimately, the house is torn down if nobody knows Christ. You know, there's no eternal value in that home. Um, we're saved, and we're still in a mixed condition. So we're not perfect. We're not, I don't think it's just an automatic, like, okay, I'm saved, so auto automatically, therefore, I must be a home builder. Um, I think that this is trying to help us look at what what our life actually tells us about our heart. So I can look at what's going on in my home. Am I, am I building? Am I, are our relationships being strengthened? Am I living out the gospel? Am I being faithful with um, the shepherding and the stewardship opportunities in my home, um, by God's grace, with you know lots of weaknesses and, and lots of areas where I still need to grow, but that's the path that I'm on. That's my trajectory, um, and and just humbly say, Wow, okay, Lord, maybe by Your grace, because I know Christ, You are doing some building here. Um, but I think we also need to be humble enough to examine and recognize. You know, I see some areas here where where I'm not building. Um, and if I'm not building, I'm tearing down. I'm not going to stand still. So I think it's a place for examining the actual practical outliving of, of the gospel and where we still have room to grow. Uh, and, and I mean, you know, your kids see you and your parents see you as you really are. And so it, um, if, if you're walking, if you're talking the talk and I'm walking the walk, that's going to be, that's going to be so obvious. So mm -hmm. we can do a lot of teaching without opening our mouths mm -hmm. in that Absolutely. Yeah. And don't forget the Christian life is not a life of perfection. It's a life of repentance, of, of growing, ongoing pursuit of Christ, that our love for him might grow, that our obedience might grow, um, all for his glory. It's not so that at the end of the day I say, well, evidently I'm a wise woman. Look how my house is built up. That would just be very foolish right there, very deceived. And you hear me saying that, you come and tell me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not seeing things right. It's only because of Christ and our eyes have been open and yeah. a new creation and we can see yeah. where we need to be. Exactly. I, mean, I wouldn't care if I wasn't a believer. Yeah. I wouldn't care. I would just continue with my anger and doing what pleases me and, and 
we're not being a new creation, we're not going to have a conviction. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. But also, as a young believer, not knowing and not having all this in my heart already, um, where it says it, our obedience to God's word influences others towards God and His word. When an older, mature Christian comes in and we have a relationship and and we interact, I can learn from her. So I'm sure there are lots of things and many things I did as a young Christian woman that took a long time, a long time to learn, hmm. or I didn't know. And so the influence from other people outside the home helped change things inside my Hmm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Exactly the way the body of Christ is designed to work. Excellent point. Did you guys hear what Terry shared? That other other women in her life, when she was a young believer and a young mom who were influencing her, she was able to see by their example, by their words, um, things that helped her that she could take back into her home to strengthen and build up her home. So it's a beautiful it's not, it's not it wasn't really anything I did, I could do on my own. Yeah. As any of us. Right. Yeah, we really need each other. You know, why don't we go ahead and just take a little break, just five minutes, and we'll come back and finish up. That was quick. All right. Well, let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 4. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And when you see the Lord in all caps in your Bible, that stands for the personal name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. So Moses is saying, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Now, verse 4 begins with the word hear. And that's the Hebrew word shema, and it's a command, an imperative. And so he's saying, Israel, hear this. And the idea of hearing with this is not what you and I might think when we say hear. We might say, did you hear that? And what we mean is, did the sound waves bounce off your ear and send a signal to your brain and make you think about what you heard? But that's not what's being said here. That would be very superficial. This is a hear with the intent to obey. It includes an intention to hear and to live under it to submit yourself to it, to order your life around who Yahweh is and what he says. So when we see hear, O Israel, it means hear and obey this, submit to this. Um, And this hearing with the intent to obey is in light of who he is. He says Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Now, this is a nation that has come out of idolatry in Egypt. They are headed into a land filled with idolatry. And so they need to be absolutely convinced that Yahweh is our God. The gods of the Canaanites were very unpredictable, capricious gods. They were either really pleased with you or they were really angry with you. But Yahweh is one. He's not one way at one time and one way at another. He's not temperamental. He is one. He is united in his being. And he is their unique God, the one and only God, completely distinct from man-made gods. And then verse 5 says, You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And that is discipline one. God's word and our heart in full contact. Remember that from the beginning of the year? God's design is that his words be on our hearts, woven into the fabric of our inner man. And it's all founded on who God is and his call on us to love him completely with all of our heart in the inner man. Remember, heart, soul, might, not three different parts of us, but a way to underscore the totality of who we are. So our next principle is that love for God is expressed through loving and obeying his word. Now, when you think about the old covenant and the Mosaic law, do you think first about love for God? 
know, I might think Ten Commandments, I might think bloody sacrifices everywhere. But when you read this, you realize that what God thought of was love for him. Yahweh's people, Israel, were not guilty before him first and foremost because they broke dietary laws or sacrificial laws or social laws or because they didn't keep all the Ten Commandments. They were guilty before Yahweh first and foremost because they did not love him with an all-consuming love. And because they did not love Yahweh, they were unconcerned with keeping the dietary and the social and the sacrificial laws. In God's mind, love has always been the issue. And that's true in the New Testament as well. The cure for disobedience must always begin by addressing love for God. How can we improve upon our obedience without fueling our love for God? Um, And you might have noticed that in your homework. Part of battling sin and repenting of sin is reminding ourselves of God's love for us because that fuels our love for him. Now, the closest covenant idea to this in our experience is probably the covenant of marriage. The marriage covenant is full of vows that the two parties pledge to keep and obey. And so the minister asks, will you? Will you do this? Will you do that? And the bride answers and the groom answers. And she says, I will. I will. And we could look at that and say, you know, that just sounds like a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. Just a bunch of rules. But on the wedding day, no bride or groom objects to all of these terms. And it's because of the love and commitment in their relationship. Their love for one another is overwhelming them, and so they're willing to commit to anything. It's a covenant. (laughs) It's a covenant relationship, and so therefore there must be rules and terms, but the primary emphasis of their obedience to those terms is love. So this command from Yahweh to love him reflects his desire for his people's attitude toward him. So this principle that love for God is expressed through loving and obeying God is also expressed by Jesus. He said in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give to God. Okay, so God says, love me with all your heart, and these words must be on your heart. Love for God from the inner man, and God's word upon the inner man. Love for God must always move the believer to God's word. If we love Jesus, it will move us toward God's word. And that's important in our households. If those in our households are to know that we love God, they must see that we love and obey God. And we must make use of his word in a loving way. Any knowledge that we have of God's word must never be communicated in a way that exalts us, but rather in a way which loves others and exalts God. So that's one way in which a wise woman will build her home. Loving God and loving and obeying his word go hand in hand. Now, what might a foolish woman do? You know, if we say that we love God, but there's no obvious love for his word in our lives, we may be tearing down our homes with our own hands. And and the way we may be doing that is we may be cultivating indifference to the word. If we say we love God, but we're unconcerned with obedience, we may tear down our own homes by cultivating indifference to sin. If we are concerned with obedience, but we fail to communicate love for God and his word, then we may be tearing down our homes with self-righteousness. So love for God is expressed through loving and obeying his word. Now, I have a word of encouragement here. This is not to say that we have everything in the Bible all figured out. We might just understand a little bit, like Terry was talking about, early in her Christian life. But we keep growing, we keep learning, we uh, hide God's word in our heart, we persevere with discipline one, and we need to be um, encouraged that even a little bit of God's word 
is powerful and it's useful in shepherding our own hearts and influencing others. All right, that brings us to number four on the outline. Now, there is a lot in these next three verses, but the principle that we're going to see is that God's design is for his word to saturate our lives, our homes, and our relationships. And there's one uh, part of the verse that I left off your outline. So under where it says chapter 6, verse 7, when you sit and when you walk, it should also have a bullet that says chapter 6, verse 7, when you lie down and when you rise up. So we'll get to that. Okay, let's read verses 7 through 9. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you should... They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So in Israel, these words had to advance beyond the husband or the father of his home to his wife and to his children. And so in verse 7, it says, teach them diligently. And we have two quotes to help explain that. The first is from Matthew Henry, and it says, frequently repeat these things to them. Try all ways of instilling them into their minds and making them pierce into their hearts, as in sharpening a knife. It's turned first on this side and then on that. Do it diligently in the sense that you're doing it over and over again, like sharpening a knife against a stone. Uh, The next quote says, The image is that of the engraver of a monument who takes hammer and chisel in hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed, but once done, the message is there to stay. The idea is that it is laborious. You cannot stop. Do this over and over again, Israel. Now, some of you have heard Laura use the phrase parenting your heart instead of shepherding your heart. These instructions for Israel paint such an accurate picture of the work involved in parenting or shepherding our own hearts. Remember, we are in a mixed condition. Our hearts don't just hear truth one time and respond in perfect submission and obedience forever, right? We need these truths poured into our hearts and taught to our hearts over and over again in order for these truths to penetrate and to stick and to go deep like we see described here. So this imprinting of God's word begins with our own heart and it extends to those around us in our household and family. We don't need to be sheepish about reminding ourselves and one another um, about the precious truths in God's word. It's what we all need and we need it over and over again. Now, the next thing you see there in verse 7 is when you sit and when you walk. Notice that this could not be referring to a quiet time or family devotions only, although quiet times and devotions are a very helpful part of building our home with God's word. But it's talking about the activities throughout the day. Israel was, upon any occasion, whether they were in the home or they were out of the home, they needed to be impressing the words of God onto those who were in their home. When they were sitting, when they were up walking, when they were active, when they were inactive. And then it says, when you lie down and when you rise up. So they're talking about at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, it was the bookends on your day were to be characterized by the impressing of the word of God upon the hearts and minds of those in the home. So in other words... The man, the head of the home in Israel, his first and foremost responsibility was to see that his household understood the word of God. And the Israelite was to go even further. Chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 8, it said, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Moses is commanding that the commandments be worn on their person, on the body of the Israelite. And we don't know exactly what this meant, Uh, But there was to be something on the garment that reminded them of the words. So no matter what they were doing with their hands, those things were always in the way. And it made them think, whenever I use my hands, the word of God needs to move these hands and influence these hands. 
And the frontals on the forehead may have been a little box that had the laws of Yahweh upon them, so that everywhere they looked, there was this constant banging on the forehead of God's word. One commentator expressed it this way. You've got this in your notes as well, I think. The commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites, and they were to serve as constraints or guides on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with the everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of his authority. They couldn't even look at somebody without having to look through God's word attached to their head. Now, verse 9 gives us one more thing that they were supposed to do with the commandments. And it says, you shall write them on, their, on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So then they're leaving their house to go out to work. The last thing they would see was God's word. They're going through the gate. The last thing they see is they leave their property and head out to interact with other people. It's God's word. And at the end of the day, they've been out working and they come home and they walk through their gate and they walk through their door and they're going to see God's word again. So God's intent in all of this is that they would be influenced by the word all the time and that the household would be saturated with the word of God. That was God's intent for Israel. They were to be so saturated with the word of God that there was not a time in their lives, there was not a place in their home, there was not an action, there was not a thought which was not informed by the word of God. All the time, everywhere, every thought, every deed, it's what they were to teach, it's what they were to talk about. So how about us? Well, clearly there is some discontinuity. Nowhere are we instructed in the New Testament to physically bind God's law on our hands or on our foreheads. We are not commanded to write them on our doorposts or our gates. But there is continuity in the principle that God's design is for his word to saturate our lives, our homes, and our relationships. In Ephesians 6.4, we see it with fathers and children. When it says fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To bring up means to nourish to maturity. And it's in the present tense. That means keep on nourishing. It's ongoing. And it's with a goal in mind. It's with maturity. We aren't raising children. We are raising adults. And we do that by nourishing them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In 2 Timothy 3, we were there earlier, verses 16 and 17, Paul describes how rich God's word is. It is not just something that we bring up when correction is needed or when we need to give an admonishment. And it's not only in the parent-child relationship. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It's beneficial. It's useful for teaching, for reproof. Reproof means that God's word brings conviction. It brings rebuke. And it's profitable for correction. That means improvement of character. And it's profitable for training in righteousness so that the man of God might be adequate, properly prepared, equipped for every good work. See, God's word is a toolbox, and it's ready to be put to work first in our own hearts to cultivate love and obedience toward God, and then in the lives of those around us to be used with care and love and grace to spur on the love and obedience of those in our households and families and our church. So we need to pick the right tool for the job. Colossians 3.16 describes this overflow of God's word from our hearts into the lives of others this way. It begins by saying, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, and that's the wisdom that we get when the word of Christ richly dwells within us. With all wisdom, teaching means to explain and admonishing. That means to urge. It can either be a warning or it can be an encouragement teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, God's word is going to overflow in many different ways when it's dwelling richly within us. It gives wisdom to explain, to warn, to encourage. It will produce thankfulness in us. Biblically informed music is a wonderful tool for bringing God's word into the lives of others around us, particularly as a teaching tool with children. Um, if you don't, if you need some uh, CDs to use with children or just for your own heart, you should check out the book table on Sunday. We've got some neat ones there. Um, But it's also important to remember, like we saw with Timothy, that the word of God is God's means of bringing about faith. Romans 10, 17 says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. That's why we saw in Timothy's life, his um, child, but from childhood, he knew those sacred writings, which were able to give him the wisdom that leads to salvation. So this principle that God's design is for his word to saturate our lives, our homes, and our relationships continues from the Old Testament into the New Testament. So if we're going to be wise women who build our homes, we will seek not to just be satisfied with Bible verses on our walls or crosses around our necks, but we will labor to continue to impress um, God's truth anew on both our own hearts and the hearts of those precious souls who come into our household. You know, why are we surprised when a truth or an instruction doesn't stick the first time we say it? Why are we surprised? I mean, have we seen anything in the word that would indicate that it's typical to just be one and done? You know, the picture God gave of sharpening that knife to Israel, stroke after stroke, or engraving in granite, thousands of tiny blows are required to permanently etch that message in the stone. Think of what we know about our own hearts and our ongoing need for God's word, our ongoing need to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over. And so we must be wise women who do not grow weary of nourishing and teaching and encouraging and correcting with the word of God in our home. But don't forget the warning. We will be tearing our homes tearing down our homes if we foolishly allow ourselves to be content with the teaching or the influence that we had in the past. And we don't continue to actively impress God's word on our own hearts as well as the hearts of those in our family and household. Don't assume that your children or your grandchildren or anybody else in your household um, understand something just because it came out of your mouth. That doesn't mean that it was understood, right? Remember Israel, God's truth needed to be heard. It needed to be seen. It needed to be felt all the time. Everyone learns differently. So pour yourself out to make the truth clear in every way that you can. Okay, any questions about that? Nope. Good. All right, we'll keep flying here. Uh, Number five, um... We're going to be back in Deuteronomy 6. Now, God has been talking to people who have access to salvation by faith. They're looking forward to Christ, and they're believing his promises. And he's been telling them how to live as people who love and fear God. And now in verses 10 through 19, he warns them. He says, beware, don't forget God. We heard Lori teach about that last time. When you go into the land and everything's going well, watch out. And he reminds them to fear only Yahweh to worship him, to not follow other gods, to not test God with grumbling and complaining, but to diligently keep his commandments. And then in verse 20, he says, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Now, remember, these are sons who have seen their fathers love God and obey God, and fear God, and diligently teach God's word in their homes. They've seen fathers who talk about God's word all the time, when they're resting and when they're working. And these sons have seen the commandments written on their doorposts and on their gates. And they've seen their fathers carry the commandments on their hands and on their foreheads so that God's word would be guiding all that they think and all that they do. These sons are going to ask a question. What does it mean? Why are we doing all this? And then you shall say to your son, verse 21, 
we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he has sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. And as believers in the church, in the New Testament, we teach God's commands so we can declare that the Lord has delivered us from slavery to sin. We teach those in our household. We teach them that we obey God because he is a great deliverer and he has a right to rule in our lives. His commands are for our good. A life of love and obedience toward God, which is saturated with God's word, both in our hearts and in our homes, will give us opportunities to proclaim the greatness of God and his salvation. And so that's our next principle. Homes filled with love and obedience toward God and his word will be filled with opportunities for declaring the greatness of God and his gospel. So the picture we get here is not one of endless lecturing um, to to anyone in our household. It's not like the adults in the Charlie Brown movies. You know, wah, 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 wah. You know, no one's listening. No one hears a word that they're saying. If that is what our communication is like, it will ultimately just tear down relationships in our home. But what we see here is a home being built up by rich dialogue, by instructions that include um, the moral and biblical reason why behind the instructions. And when I say that, please don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about being manipulated by a young child who's whining and disobeying by asking you why instead of obeying. Uh, (laughs) um, No, young children need to be taught to obey, um, even when they don't understand, without whining, without challenge. But as our children grow, we want to live lives that are rich with instruction so that our children are not only learning to obey, but they're learning wisdom. We want our, to help our children see how our commands reflect God's word. Now, when kids are young, there needs to be a whole lot of training focused on obedience. But that training is paving the way for teaching how God's commands point to his character and his word and his salvation. And again, it is not limited to children. Our own love and obedience toward God and his word will promote opportunities for encouraging others in our households and families with the greatness of God and his gospel. All right. So we've walked through Deuteronomy 6, um, and then we've looked forward into the New Testament to see how those um, principles were carried forward for understanding the relationship between God's word and our hearts and our homes. Um, And and there's plenty in what we've seen already to spur us on in pursuit of God's word. Um, But before we finish, we're going to look at Psalm 19. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you want, or you have it written out in your notes. Um, Because a lot of these talk about instruction. Um, and, And we want to be diligent with that. But we are also, we saw the principle of saturating our home with, with God's word. And I don't think any of us want our relationships or our homes to be saturated with instructions only. Um, but thankfully, God's word tells us that first and most, God's word is a book about God himself. Um, it is by God and it reveals God. And as such, it supplies abundantly for drawing us near to God and for supplying everything we need for life and godliness, and everything that those in our households need for life and godliness. So, um, let's look through Psalm 19, and as you see what the word supplies, think this is not only what it supplies to you, but it's a tool that you could use to supply these things to those in your household and family. And we're going to see the principle that God's word is overflowing with treasures for building our homes on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to start with verse 7. This might be familiar from your first, one of your first homework assignments. But it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. 
Are there souls in your household and family that need restoration? Other translations say refresh, revive, renew. We can use God's word to refresh those in our homes. Next in verse 7, it says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you need wisdom? Do your family need wisdom? God's word is sure. It makes the simple wise. Verse 8 tells us that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Does your household need joy? God's word supplies it. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. They brighten our lives. They guide us. Anyone in your home or family need that? Verse 9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Do you want to give your household what will last, what endures, something that's clean, that's not dirty, polluted? God's word stands in stark contrast to the world in which we live. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. Does your household need truth? And then verse 11, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. This was the most precious commodity in the ancient world. So David is trying to think, figure out how I can, he can describe the value of God's word. And he thinks of this great, big pile of the most precious gold. And he says, God's word is more desirable than that. That is something priceless with which we can build up our homes. Next he writes, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's just so good to remember God's word is pleasant. It's sweet to the soul. The souls in our households and family will be enriched when we build our homes with God's word, when we show how sweet it is. Verse 11 then says, Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. We can use God's word to warn those in danger. We can encourage by reminding them of the goodness of obedience. Do you see that the law was not a burden to the Old Testament believer? God's word was their treasure, and it brought them pleasure. So the principle that God's word is overflowing with treasures and pleasures for building our homes on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. So we've been talking all year about discipline one and discipline two and being the aroma of Christ in our homes. And in my home, that has had a lot of different shapes over the years. Many times it has been heavily weighted on instruction um, and correction using God's word. There are times when Scott has been doing a lot of family devotion time in the Word, and so I would um, try to be mindful of other ways that I could use the Word with um, helping the kids with worship and prayer and um, other kinds of heart shepherding. Um, And there are times when we've been less intentional with the Word than we could have been and should have been. And it seems like every time there's a new season of life, you kind of have to figure it out again with new schedules and all that's going on. But in Build this year, Scott Maxwell used the illustration of a skateboard on a hill. Before we knew Christ, we were all sailing down that hill. But when Christ saves us, he um, turns us around and he points us up the hill and he says, okay, now push. And that's discipline one. It takes discipline. It's working out our salvation with fear and trembling, all the time comforted to know that he is the one who's working in us for his good pleasure. So that's the work that he's begun in us, and he enables us to keep pushing. But on that skateboard, there is no standing still. We're either resolutely pushing uphill, or by, and that would all be by God's grace, or we're sliding backwards. And building, God's, building our homes with God's word is a lot like that. It doesn't happen by accident. There may be times when we're doing great, and then something changes. And we find that our gospel aroma... And our biblical influence has taken a few steps backwards. And it needs to be shored up again. And and we need to think again about how we can be intentional and thoughtful um, and creative, not just for correction, but for encouragement and for refreshment and for joy and for wisdom, um, to give those in our household the greatest treasure and the sweetest pleasure that we can with God's word. Because God's word is what will reveal God to them. Now, if you're in a hard season now, be encouraged. It will change. Persevere. 
Um, if you're in an easy season, be thankful and be aware that that might change. But our heart for God's word must never change. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the riches of your word. Thank you that you are pleased to use your word um, to change hearts, to save the lost, to um, transform redeemed sinners into the image of your Son, to prepare us to meet Jesus face to face when he returns. Lord God, your word brings us unity in our homes. It is sweet. It is our greatest treasure. And we need your help so badly for knowing um, how to keep growing in being a gospel influence in our homes with your words. Lord, I pray for our discussion times that they'd be rich and encouraging. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in your discussion groups, I want to encourage you, um, however your discussion leader wants to direct your time is up to her, but you may want to talk about practical ways to use God's word in your home, things that you have done or things you've seen others do or questions that you have, places where maybe you need help. Um, And then I also want you to notice that the green homework that you brought back today shows a lot of different ways for using God's word, both obviously in this particular area of dealing with complaining in our own hearts, but there's a pattern there that we can use for battling other sin and for encouraging other people to look at not just what God's word says about the sin, but to look at God's sovereignty and his purposes and his instructions and uh, a biblical perspective on trials and looking at God's love and looking at the gospel. Um, there's just a lot of different angles on um, on our circumstances and our trials and our sin that God's word can give us. So have a great time discussing. When we get to 9 o'clock, go ahead and pray and dismiss on your own.